with the man many people have credited with being the godfather of Christian rock, Mr. Larry Norman. And uh, Larry, i got to say, it's, uh, it's an absolute honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I guess uh, right off the bat, we'd do a sort of a chronological thing here and ask you, you know, how and when did it all start? I hate to sound like a typical interview thing here, but uh, there's actually a number of people that maybe have never heard of your music up this way. All right. Uh, I started in 1956. I started performing... Um, and writing my own songs, and um, 1960, I went on, I think it was 60, I went on the, um, it's kind of like American Idol, um, it was called The Amateur Hour, and then in 1966, I signed with Capitol Records, which now I think is known as EMI in, in many countries. And started recording my songs in uh, for Capital for EMI, and then started my own label. Then signed with MGM Records in '71, and then uh, produced my own artists like Randy Stonehill. I worked with uh, helping Keith Green, Steve Camp, uh, Daniel Amos, uh, Mark Hurd. Sheila Walsh, uh, I helped a lot of people get started, and um, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm making music, and I've retired from the road, but I still make albums. Now, you mentioned a couple of names there, which many, I'm sure, would be familiar with, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought those, those names up, because I did want to ask you, how did you first come across Keith Green? Keith was a feisty kid who kept telling me that I should record him because he was going to be big. But Keith wasn't a Christian, and so I wanted him to, you know, stop his volatile lifestyle and and uh, settle down and enjoy life as a Christian. And so I just prayed for him and waited for him and argued with him, and he he liked to debate. Uh, and he liked to ask questions, and I think that he was like that his whole life. You know, even after he became a Christian, he still liked to discuss things and find out, you know, new. Uh, uh, he, he was interested in theology. Well, when I was speaking with Randy Stonehill about Keith Green, he described Keith as a as a giant Labrador puppy with med, muddy paws who liked to jump up and and kind of get you all dirty. Yes, he's very enthusiastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, a, a bit of a loss, uh, of course, with Keith dying in the plane crash, and then, of course, we are speaking of Mark Hurd, who I believe about ten years ago, uh, after a concert, died of uh, of heart failure, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that correct? Yes, I think it was in '93, possibly '94. Um, 
I had uh, had a conversation with him, and I told him my doctor said I didn't have long to live, so I wanted him to know that I had put him in my will and that he should contact my parents when I passed away, and I thought that was the last time I'd see him, and it was, but but uh, he had a heart attack and died. I, I didn't know he was sick. He didn't either. Yeah, it was quite a surprise to the community and, of course, to those who, who love him. But, I mean, both you and he have got the uh, the heart issues. What's uh, I, You must be sick of talking about your health all the time with people, but just briefly, how, how are you these days, Larry? Um, up and down, a lot of times down. Um, I didn't have anything wrong uh, with my heart, and I didn't have cholesterol issues. I had a blood clot, and... I went to the emergency room at the hospital, and ER should have given me an EKG. They would have seen that I was having a heart attack uh, for about eight hours. And I, I was screaming and clutching my chest, and I couldn't stop screaming. I was in so much pain. I, it was continual. I finally lost my voice, and I kept screaming. They put me in a room in the ER and then kept coming in to say, could you please stop screaming? disturbing people <laughs> and uh, they never gave me an aspirin if they had they given me an aspirin it would have dissolved the clot and I would never have had the heart attack but as it was after all those hours they came in and I was unconscious and then they realized they'd made a mistake so they um, found out over half of my heart had died from this little blood clot and the blood clot was caused by stress. You know, I, I live in a very stressful type of uh, in profession, I guess you'd say. To me, it's a ministry, but it's very stressful all the time. Touring. Most artists tour, and they write songs and record them. And on top of that, I was producing artists, running a record company, running a booking agency, um, giving... Uh, advice, legal advice, uh, classes on, on how to set up your own company, how to publish, all, all kinds of things. I was very much trying to help the Christian community in particular, and then also reach out to non-Christians and help them to become Christians. Because when I met Randy Stonehill, he wasn't a Christian, and uh, Keith Green wasn't a Christian, and I'm not sure about some of the others that they've walked a thin line for a long time, um, but had no interest in in Christian music. It, um, just were attracted to show business. I was just busy, you know, and it caused stress. And I had a blood clot, and it could have been dissolved with aspirin, and that. But instead, I've that was 1992. So I've had a different lifestyle ever since then. So what's what's going on nowadays? I understand you have a, a, a maybe some problems with a pacemaker that you've had for quite a while. Yeah, that's one of the problems. Um, it has a three-year battery, but after one year, the battery wore out because I was shocked so many times. Every time my body starts to have a heart attack, I get a shock. You know, it's like in the TV show when they go clear and they have the paddles on the person's chest. Well, I have the paddles inside my body attached to my heart. So, yes, I've had trouble with the pacemaker, the defibrillator, and 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 um, 
complications with my doctors giving me bad advice and then realizing it and later and changing direction and changing medicines and it's it's been interesting with all the the physical issues that you've been struggling through uh in the last number of years larry I mean, it must have had some sort of an impact on you spiritually. Uh, has your theology changed? Has your has your uh, understanding of, of God's love and grace changed? I mean, are you just sometimes do you just get to the point where you're just like, okay, Lord, take me home. I'm sick of this. No, no, not really. Um, I would say that my appreciation for God has increased the more difficult my life has been. I can't explain why. I know that a lot of people get discouraged, maybe think that God has abandoned them, think that prayers don't get answered, think that, I don't know, just a lot of negative things. But I have just felt closer and closer to God, and uh, a lot of my problems have been worked out through being sick. Little problems like um, being upset with the music industry for stealing from the artists, uh, for lying to artists. Uh, it's widespread. I, uh, I, I personally tried to combat it by giving artists advice on how to negotiate with companies, how to avoid getting entrapped, and, get, and then getting frustrated because a lot of artists either were too immature or too ambitious they just wanted to be successful. They didn't care if they were being abused at the same time. But all that, all those issues have just gone away. I mean, when you know, I'm facing the possibility of death at any moment. So other things just fail to be important mm. or troublesome. You know, when people are facing death, and I'm not sure whether you feel that you're actually facing death. I mean, you just mentioned that, you know, you could be dead at any moment, so I guess that's facing death. But when people are in that situation, one thing they always talk about is getting their affairs in in order. Do, do you feel that that's already kind of been done? You, you feel like everything's in order? You've, you've, you've done, said, been, taken care of, whatever you need to have taken care of before you go? Oh, yes, years ago. Uh Maybe people put it off till the last minute, but I think it's a daily thing we're supposed to take care of. If somebody is mad at you about something, find out what it is and apologize. If you didn't do anything wrong, go ahead and apologize anyway. What does that hurt to say, I'm, re I'm very sorry this happened? Even if it's their perception that makes it negative and it actually is because of their uh, narcissism or something that... that makes him uh, like a selfish uh, person who interprets the whole world as being uh, something in which they're centered. It doesn't matter. Just love people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, get your affairs in order every day. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And I think we shouldn't let the sun go down on someone else's wrath either. We should help them. You know, maybe if we're more mature as a brother then we are an older brother, and we we can help people that are having difficulties. Why let them go through more and more years of of trouble um, and suffer the things that we suffered? So some of us mature slower than others, and and um, there's a lot of equitable 
uh, mercy involved with love. The Bible says love one another, be tenderhearted, forgive each other, confess your sins one to another. We're supposed to be a brotherhood. We're not supposed to be a competition. If God is my father and you are my brother then why can't we bother to really reach out and love one another mm-hmm. why do we keep on acting the way we do the way we treat each other it just breaks my heart in two once we I've got to let our listeners know we're on the phone with uh, with Larry Norman. And uh, Larry, uh, you played a, a major role in my life when I was a teenager growing up. I got to a point where uh, I, I attempted a suicide, and during that, that very scary, foggy period I was in, the lyrics and your music really helped me get through it. I mean, it just sounds so cliche and so cheesy to say, but ser- seriously, uh, I, I think back to then, and I, you know, that was, I mean, I was a young teenage guy. I wasn't into reading chapters of the Bible every day, and so I needed a go-between many times, and, and that's what you were for me uh, so many years ago. So uh, just personally, from my point of view, thanks thanks for doing what you've done for so many years. Sounds like the interview's over here, but anyway. <laughs> uh, well, you're welcome. I'm glad I could. <laughs> Uh, be your friend and not even know you. <laughs> well, it's, well, I think that's the weird thing about uh, you know the industry that you're in. I, I was just speaking with uh, Brian Duncan, who's here touring, and you know, so many years ago, we would look up at those guys, yourself included, and think, man, you know, they've got it all together and they're so spiritually uh, right on. And now that I've lived a few years, I understand people struggle. And, and is, as my favorite author has said many times, uh, messy spirituality is the Christianity most of us live, but few of us admit. You know, it's Mike Iaconelli, a brilliant author. Mike Iaconelli, I uh, met him in 1971. Interesting. It's kind of like uh, the saying that uh, we're a a work in progress. I I know that in the the creative world, um, making music, the studio might end up getting messy during the recording of an album. Uh, when, When the mom is preparing dinner, the kitchen cabinets might... You know, the, the kitchen counters might get messy when she's uh, preparing the ingredients. So I think that that's part of the the uh, process of reconstruction, taking something and turning it into something better, taking a, a box of flour and making it into, you know, food. Uh, so, yeah, I would think that that's very true, that, that it's, not, it's not easy for Christians to even begin to discuss the... the, uh, the the real problems in their life because they feel that there's a, a judgment awaiting them. There's criticism and um, maybe abandonment from some people in the Christian community. 
So I, I remember growing up in San Francisco that that there wasn't a lot of confession from the members of the church because at that time there was so much harsh backlash, so much criticism. Uh, so that, yeah, I, that's... Well, Mike Iaconelli was a very intelligent man. Well, there, but here we go again talking about another man of God who has preceded you with uh, a death through a heart attack. I mean, he uh, was, it was almost a year, I guess it was about a year and a half ago he died uh, while driving uh, in Northern California. Huh. So uh, another loss. Yes, very sad. You know, I, I think back over your career, Larry, and uh, and i got to ask you this question. Um, I asked the same question of Kathy Lee Gifford, so I don't know if you want to be put in the same category as her, but what is it about you that has attracted so many rumors and gossip and controversy over the years, you know? You know, stormy relationship. Um, <laughs> I do the TV show with Regis, and Frank is doing the sports casting. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, I think that in my case, and I knew Kathy Lee when she was a kid, uh, so it's interesting to watch her life. Uh, I think that I was doing something that the church did not believe in. I was singing music using rhythms that they weren't uh, familiar with, didn't appreciate, and it was a cultural battle. I started in 1956. For 15 years I fought to do uh, what I was doing the way I believed it needed to be done. And I, honestly, the church would have never accepted what I did and I decided maybe I should try to raise an army so that it wouldn't just be one person out in the desert, you know, crying out in the wilderness, uh, but that there would be an army of us of believers that couldn't be ignored. So I began trying to, uh, you know, bring other people to Christ and, and um, teach them about music and see if they could communicate what apparently I I was failing to communicate, and uh, the rumors that I heard during those years were so bizarre. One was that I lived in a cave in the Hollywood Hills, and uh, I don't know where that came from. And then an, an alternate rumor, which was related, was that I lived I had moved into caves in Greece, and I was studying the Koran, huh. and I can't figure out why any of that. That's very uh, very Cat Stevens-ish. Yeah, 1971. <laughs> it was a mystery. Um, gosh, I, I, there were so many crazy rumors. I, I don't remember all of them. I'm in shutdown.
But anyway, that's just, if you're going to be the first person to try to do something, then you have to expect people to not want you to do it, but also try to stop you from doing it. And, you know, the heart of men is very difficult to know, to understand. Um, in fact, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Apparently, we can't even trust ourselves. And if we think back to our past in our life, there's been many things that each of us have done, which we, you know, are ashamed of having done, don't know why we did it really, can't believe that we did it, and and how could we get so far afield? How could we go off the main road, the straight and narrow path, and uh, start tumbling down a side path? So I I just think that's human nature, and uh, being Christians doesn't make you stop being a human. Mm. It just amplifies everything you do because now you have the law, you can see black and white, so you're more aware of what you do instead of if you didn't know Christ, you could happily go on making the same mistakes forever. Well, Larry, when you look back on your life and in ministry, are you, do you have any, um, I don't know, any bad feelings about the way the church has treated you over the years? I mean, whether you like it or not, you are an iconoclast. And, uh, and, and those type of personalities don't ever really go down that well inside the fortress. Well, I don't feel bad that the church has treated me any particular way. I um, didn't expect them to like what I was doing. In fact, my intention was to try to destroy the things in the church that had hurt me and hurt other young people. Uh, I wanted to basically, when it came to music, I didn't want to, to destroy the hymns. I love the hymns. I think they're powerful in the the majesty of the lyrics. The theology put right into the words is so dense and powerful, which pop music has never been or, or rarely even attempted to be. But my my idea was I would knock on the door of the church and they'd open it up and then I'd throw myself down so they couldn't close the door. And I never expected to be accepted into the church, but I thought, I'm going to make sure a lot of other people can get in behind me, and I'll just be a door block. I'll just keep the, the barrier down. And, and um, you know, I used to try to bring people to church, prostitutes, drug addicts, uh, people that they were desperate, desperately in need of Christ. And... They didn't have nice clothes. You know, sometimes the prostitutes wore skirts that were way too short. And, and But I didn't want to make that part of the message, like God will only uh, receive you if you dress in a uh, knee-length, you know, ensemble. But that just come as you are. Let's just get this going. You know, just get saved first, then you can worry about whether... You need to stop smoking cigarettes or something. Just let's just let's deal with your spiritual life right now. You're in trouble. It's not what you do. It's not that you take drugs. It's not that you're a hooker. It's that you're a sinner. You need God. We all need God. We're all sinners. Sipping whiskey from a paper cup. You drown your sorrows till you can't say. 
say to people who resonate strongly with what you're saying and they've experienced frustration and hurt and rejection uh, in, in the church and, and maybe they're not really all that fussed about going to church these days they, you know a lot of people there's quite an underground movement of, of followers genuine followers of Christ who don't want to go to church you don't feel it necessary to go to church they still meet together with believers uh, they don't forsake the meeting of, uh, of brothers and sisters in Christ, but they don't want to be part of the organized institution. They don't want to go inside the fortress. What, what do you say to, to those, those people? I mean, is, has church ever really been a, a solid part of your life? Do you, have you ever attended regularly? Oh, yeah, I did. I, I used to do like a 100-mile round trip, go pick up people in different cities and take them all down to Orange County to a church the services were five hours on Friday and eight hours on Sunday, and then I started a 
church called the Vineyard in my home. It was a Bible study. It was the first one. Uh, I know there's lots of vineyards that grew out of that. I don't know. There's, what, 300, 400? But my uh, original vision was that movie stars and rock and rollers needed a place to come and hear about Jesus without having to sign autographs. So really it was an outreach ministry, uh, ministry into Hollywood into the movie stars that I knew and the rock singers that I knew and and that's where Randy Stonehill got his act together and Keith Crean got his act together and uh, just a lot of people you know Bob Dylan came there for Bible study every morning uh, a lot of people really got on the path with Jesus uh, and then the church was so big that it it divided, and uh, at one time it was so big we we would meet on the beach during the summer, and there'd be I don't know 500 kids, and uh, it was nice and warm in California. And then we started realizing we need to move it inside, and it's too big to be two churches. We're now going to have to have three different congregations. We didn't want to divide up this, the the day like five services on Sunday. We wanted to have five churches so that people didn't need to drive very far, but also that they could have a community of believers. Because if you're going to invite somebody to go to church, it's very weird to say, so, okay, you want to come to church with me? That's, that's going to be great. Now it's an hour and a half away. You know, yeah. let's just keep, let's just make little cell groups. Let, let the vineyard grow like seedlings instead of having one giant tree let's have a lot of a lot of little trees that will grow into giant trees so yeah I'm, church has been part of my experience but I don't blame anybody for feeling disenfranchised from the church or feeling like an outsider I, first of all I wouldn't call the call it the fortress fortress is a place that protects you from the evil in the world I wouldn't say that the church is a fortress I would say that Christ is a fortress and the church is a population of people that wander in and out of the fortress and sometimes bring viruses with them, you know, whether it be a common cold or insurrection or false theology. Yeah, when I use the term fortress, I, I'm thinking primarily of, of uh, Christendom running inside the walls, hiding and, and finding comfort zones, and, uh, and and then developing these nuances that just are so foreign to anybody else in the real world outside the fortress walls. Yeah, or a prison with an open-door policy so that people can go. You know, sometimes mental institutions, you can check yourself in, and if you do, then you can check yourself out any time you want. If you're forced to go in, you can't get out without a court order. So I don't know what the church is today. I think it depends what church we're talking about. I, I, I have a lot of... Uh, correspondence with people that are having difficulties at their church and it, it's various kinds of difficulties so I can understand the New Testament a lot better the books to the different churches had different problems yeah. and that's why there's a variety of, uh, of uh, re recommendations and suggestions in, in these uh, parts of the scripture okay so so from your point of view Larry I mean, in what way does the church need to get its act together in order to effectively reach this so-called new age, postmodern, western, navel-gazing world? 
Well, first of all, the church needs to feed the poor. There's no point in just amassing money in the bank from the congregate so that you can build a new wing and hopefully fill it with more people in attendance. What about feeding the poor? Jesus said to do it. When is the church going to do that part of what Jesus said? Yes, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, I think Paul said that, so they're quite happy to do that. But then there's a, an infrastructure of, of uh, it's, it's um, you, you could some might call it a pecking order. Different board members have more power than others. Um, sometimes pastors don't even have total freedom to preach what they feel is really on their heart. They have to kind of get clearance from the board because certain things aren't allowed. Um, a friend of mine, a pastor, mentioned that there wasn't just one view of the uh, return of Christ. <clears throat> he said, I just want you to know that there are other ideas that people argue about, and maybe you've never heard this before, but some people say Christ comes before the tribulation. Some people say he comes after the tribulation. Some people say he comes in the middle of the tribulation. That's all he said. Well, his, his, the head of the denomination that his church belonged to wrote to him within a couple of weeks and told him, take down your sign. You're no longer to call yourself a member of our denomination. And So <clears throat> I think that there's a, a lot of politics in the church instead of being solely concerned with doing what Jesus says we should do. Jesus says that we should witness to people in season and out of season, pray without ceasing, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, go into the highways and the byways. <clears throat> the church has it backwards. They they don't go outside. They merely post a sign saying, welcome. And then they give the hours that you can come to the church. So if you're a, a drug addict or a drug dealer, uh, you know, hey, if you want to go to church where people are going to look down on you and you're going to hear a message you don't understand, well, at least you know what time the doors are open and what time they're not open. Well, that's not enough. You can be righteous, proper, or a holy ruler. You can be most anything. You can be a child of the slum or a skid row Without love I got to ask you this, uh, Larry. After following Christ all these years, did you ever come really close to just chucking it? Because I mean, I, I remember, I remember you saying in some of your lyrics and some of the sort of the back talk and the tracks and the, and the uh, different uh, albums that you've had. You, you know, there was there was a lot of uh, not not I wouldn't say it would be prophetic words, but you you were really hoping and and saying that Christ was going to come back real soon. I mean that was twenty thirty years ago. I mean is that real soon? Do you get disillusioned? Do you do you stop looking up at the sky and waiting for Christ to return? I mean what? Did you ever come close to chucking it? No, never, not for a second. Really? 
No. Why? Well, go go where? Just like the the uh, disciple said, where would we go, Lord? Uh, there's no place I want to go. You know, I've already been to the secular world, even though I was a Christian. I, I've been in rock and roll. I've filled giant halls. I've sold out Royal Albert Hall. I've played at the Moscow Stadium. I, I've been all over the world. What's there? Nothing. I don't even understand why Christian artists want to cross over and go secular. There's nothing there, boys and girls. God's got it all. All the good stuff that belongs to God. All the bad stuff that's been ripped off, cloned, burned, CD-rommed. It's all, that's what the devil has to offer. Counterfeit stuff. I want the people to know that he saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say the rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance. I say it feels so good, I gotta get up and dance. I know what's right, I know what's wrong. I don't confuse it. All I'm really trying to say is why should the devil have all the good music? And I feel good every day. They say to cut my hair, they're driving me insane. I threw it out long to make room for my brain. But sometimes people don't understand what's a good boy doing in a rock and roll band. There's nothing wrong with playing blues But if you got a reason, tell me to my face. Why should the devil have all the good music? There's nothing wrong with what I'm playing. Enthusiasm of Christ's return, because again, I remember specifically a number of times in your albums you would you would be so looking forward to Christ's return, and it almost sounded like Christ was was going to you know return the next week. And again, that uh, was that was thirty no, years ago. You're you're probably thinking of a few songs. I think three or four songs. There is. Uh, well, let's just look at. I wish we'd all been ready, since everybody knows that song. Sure. I wish we'd all been ready. Doesn't really take a position on Christ's return, it doesn't really identify whether 
I think he's coming before, in the middle, or after the tribulation. Right, right. It, it ignores that completely. In fact, the lyrics are written from uh, past tense. Life was filled with guns and wars. Now, who am I singing this? Am I a Christian who is survived on earth? Am I a non-Christian who's just giving the news, this is what happened? And then there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. I didn't say the sun will come, and you'll be left behind. I have avoided a lot of the the impetuous theologies of uh, the Jesus movement. Uh, I've tried to avoid zeal without wisdom. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot you know, of that around. Like, here comes the king, I'm just singing. Okay, it's happening, here comes the king. And Messiah, I'm saying, Messiah took the world by force. Again, it's past tense. It's like part B of I wish we'd all been ready. It's the bloody side of war. It's what the world goes through. It's not um, pastoral and peaceful like I wish we'd all been ready seems to be. Filled with guns and war And everyone got trampled on the floor I wish we'd all been ready Children died, the days grew cold A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold I wish we'd all been ready There's no time to change
I've been very specifically aware of of this um, discussion that I heard about when I was five years old about the return of Christ and He'd be coming any minute. Uh, I'll tell you one more thing. In the 50s, we had to climb under our desks whenever the bell went off. A special buzzer bell would go off, and that was a, a, a warning that we were being bombed. We were practicing for the atomic bomb. Yeah, there was a commercial on TV that went along with that, uh, some, something about a turtle named Bert. Do you remember that? Oh. Okay, it was a duck and cover. No, I don't remember that. Is it a cartoon show? Yeah, it was just a little cartoon. This this turtle named Bert just taught all the kids to duck and cover oh, get a, underneath yeah, their yeah, desk. A, a public service. Public service announcement. For yeah, young people. that's right. Yeah. Well, when I was, you know, five, I was scared. I mean, going to school and being told, now children, get under the desk, put your hand, your arm over your head, do not look out the window, do not look at the blast, because you'll become blinded. And, just, you know, but then, because I also was a Christian when I was five, I was reading the Bible, I would say when I was seven or eight, I came across a scripture that talked about Christ returning to earth, and I thought, okay, well then there's going to have to be an earth for him to come back to, so the whole world's not going to be destroyed completely by atomic bombs, so that's, I, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Meanwhile, kids kept worrying, and the, they were o overly concerned about the Cold War with Russia, and I had peace all those years. Hmm. You know, uh, being a, a Canadian, uh, having grown up in this country, but also having lived in California for four years and lived in Australia for five years, I've noticed uh, a particular Christian dogma or dogmatism, however you want to say it, yeah. uh, in the States in particular. I'll just give you a quick example. And I think that this is what you're really referring to or, 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 or suggesting or, or talking about. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Tim LaHaye, uh, the author of the Left Behind books, and I asked him, I said, you know, Tim, you probably didn't know these books were going to be the phenomena that they are. Do you have any regrets now that people see the end times view that your books promote as the only end times view that are out there? And uh, his answer was no, because it is the only view that's out there. And and I, I, you know, speaking again as someone who's who comes from a, a different culture, I mean, just to just to sort of put the blinders on and say, you know, I, I mean, obviously he can agree with it and 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 hunker down into it. I understand that, no problem. He can believe in that, but to deny that there are other eschatological viewpoints out there, I don't know. That reminds me of American dogmatism. Do you, do Maybe you he doesn't know about these other viewpoints. Maybe he's not that learned. <laughs> Maybe. Gee, you're a gracious guy, I tell you. <laughs> so has your theology changed much over time? I mean, is there any rookie Christian stuff that you don't believe anymore? No, I wouldn't say that I've had to throw anything away. I would say that the limitations of what I was taught has... Uh, sometimes become well you know the, the the view of God as being our judge and uh, being angry with sin and being unable to look upon us because we're sinners that was a terrible thing for me to consider when I was growing up God's never going to like me because I'm a sinner why am I a sinner? because I'm a human I'm six years old, and now I'm seven, and I still haven't done anything wrong, but I'm just born a sinner, so God hates my guts. 
it got very extreme. I, I thought that there would never be any reconciliation between me and God until I died. I'd, I had this idea that when I died, I go to heaven, God would stand there and judge me, but he wouldn't even want to look at my face because I'm a human. He'd be so disgusted, but he'd just peer inside of my soul, and if he saw Jesus in there, then he'd go, okay, I guess you're one of mine, get in here. But that there was no real love. God would only love all of us after we are all dead and that we lived in heaven, and then we were perfect, and then he'd love us. Well, that I guess you could say that got thrown out when I found out that God was a loving God uh, but I wouldn't say that that was a foolish Christianity. Uh, it wasn't like I was some stupid kid who just got it wrong. This was being forced upon me, and and other people my age, uh, pretty much from every quarter in the fifties, there was a lot of of negativity and you know hellfire and brimstone is what they called it. Um, my mom became a Christian and, and mentioned to my grandmother, oh, it's just so much fun being a Christian. And my grandmother said, what do you mean fun? It's not fun. It's serious. So I think that that was just the era that they were living in. So I was quite happy to find out that God loves all of us. Yeah, that'd be a, a bit of a relief, I can imagine. Well, we're on the uh, on the phone with Larry Norman, uh, who many people have credited to, uh, to being the godfather of Christian rock. That's kind of, I don't know, are you sick of that, that shtick that people have put on you? Um, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know... You're the originator of Christian rock. Some guy, some black man, who was uh, purchased off the boat by a plantation owner in the South, was probably the father of Christian rock. Whoever wrote the first black American gospel song about Jesus, he was the father of Christian rock. You know, I, I, when you came here to Toronto and, and went to the uh, the Toronto Airport, Christian Fellowship used to be known as the Toronto Blessing or the, the Vineyard Church up here. Uh, to me, that was kind of a, it was like mixing oil and water. I, 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 uh, I'd interviewed John Arnott uh, a little while ago, the pastor there, and I tell you, what a, what a great guy. He's got a heart of gold. And I said to him, John... You're, uh, you're you're the nicest pastor of the weirdest church I know, and, and they've, they've had so much controversy there over the years. And then, of course, here comes Larry Norman, and I thought, wow, that's, then, that just seems like mixing oil and water for me. I didn't, I didn't quite match the two, and that was fairly judgmental of me, I admit that. But is your connection with the vineyard uh, any more than, than the fact that you were the guy that started it in your living room so many years ago? The vineyard is not something that I'm involved with in any any capacity whatsoever. And when I went up to the the church in Canada, it was because they asked me to come. And I said, I don't want to just sing. I'd like to give some seminars. So I think I gave four seminars. They were supposed to be an hour long. And I would tell people, okay, I don't even know what I'm talking about, so what's the topic for this particular room right now? And they'd tell me, and I'd start in on that. And after an hour, I'd say, okay, well, it's time to go. And they'd sit there, and I'd say, okay, am I going to get in trouble because of this? Are you guys going to go or not? And and they'd stay there. So I'd say, okay, I'll just keep talking until someone in authority comes and tells me I've got to leave this room. And what I was saying to them was actually 
in contrast to what they perceived the vineyard was all about. I explained to them the history of Pentecostalism in America and the kinds of things that I had seen and what the scripture says, hoping that I wasn't just attacking the teachings of the vineyard, hoping that somehow this all dovetailed together in creating a broader picture of what they were experiencing. But I was asking some questions of them, you know, rhetorically, not waiting for an answer, but saying, why does a person feel that they're getting closer to God if they throw themselves down on the floor and roar like a lion? Uh, I've been in some of the meetings where I was almost knocked over by people who suddenly dropped and rolled and and uh, is that what God wants this kind of disorder I don't think we all need to sit quietly in chairs but but what are we saying are we saying that the experience of sitting and reading the Bible and praying is not enough that you have to have some almost out of body experience for it to be legitimately transcendent so I was questioning making them question and not particularly caring what their answer was you know let the Holy Spirit decide who does what with what information I I think that if we give Bible verses and encourage people to go to scripture and research things for themselves that's the safest thing to do I don't want to have a theology that I'm pushing and I don't want to push against anyone else's theology I just want us to be Christians I want us to read the Bible stop sinning Repent, feed the poor, go out into the streets and witness, and bring them in, bring them in from the fields of sin. Go to your local hookers and your local drug dealers and stuff, and see if you can bring people to Christ. That's all I care about. Darkness can't hide much longer. The spirit is getting stronger. You keep the dance halls humming, but the end of the age is coming. Situations drastic. I'm glad my faith is stronger. This world won't last much longer. I all around the world to find a place of peace. I'm in the shade of God and I watch the joy
Now, what? And here's this word. I'm, I'm not real fond of this word, secular. But, but what? What secular artists or mainstream artists have you have you had the opportunity to introduce to Jesus over the years? I, I don't think that's good for me to say. And um, I remember Billy Graham would never talk about who he had prayed through to conversion. But sometimes uh, afterwards we'd find out from the wife. Like when Steve McQueen passed away, then his wife said that that Billy had come to the hospital and talked to him again and again, and they had been friends, they'd become friends, and that Steve had become a Christian. So the last part of Steve's life was very joyous. He went back to uh, communicating with his first wife and and um, the same thing with John Wayne. And uh, his daughter, Pilar, is the one who finally told everybody what was going on. So it's kind of it's kind of bizarre in most people's minds to think John Wayne's a Christian. Like, what? But if he was, he was. Only weak men become Christians. Can't tough guys like Steve McQueen and John Wayne? Become Christian, yeah. so that's one reason I don't talk about you know people who uh, are in the secular world. It's really up to them to tell. You know, it, uh, what's what is it that they say? You know, when they tell you in the church, okay, now that you've raised your hand with every head bowed and every eye closed, eye, eye closed, and you've raised your hand, now I want you to stand, just stand quietly. Okay, now I want you to come down the front and let everybody <laughs> see who you are. And it be, you know, I think that it's important for that person to decide to tell everybody. It's not important. You know, you don't out somebody. Get them out of the closet. Hey, they're Christians. Yeah. That puts a lot of pressure on them. Wouldn't it be nice if they could grow peacefully in privacy like we all got the chance to? Yeah, and the the artists that I've spoken to who are known for their secular success have actually preferred to stay anonymous, not for fear of, of being ridiculed or rejected because of their Christianity, but for more of a fear of of the Christians sinking their hooks into them and, and, and claiming them as their own and putting them into their little boxes and waiting for them to disappoint them. Excellently put. That's exactly right. Bono said that. B.J. Thomas said that. Yeah. I remember you. I remember you sharing, and uh, I, I can't remember where it was at a concert or at a meeting or somewhere. But uh, you shared a funny story about Richard Simmons. Uh, maybe how you first met him or something like that. He was working as a maitre d' or something. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, when I was at MGM, the president and the vice president and the heads of A and R invited me out to a restaurant. Uh, it was a nice kind of an Italian restaurant but uh had other things on the menu and I was trying to figure out the menu and and the um maitre d seated us and was flouncing around and uh then the you know well I I spent most of my career in Hollywood so I knew a lot of gay people back before they called themselves gay you know before that became a term that was acceptable to both sides so I just thought, okay, we've got a cute little butterfly here, and you know, and that's fine. Well, then the meal came, and then the food came, and all of a sudden, about 10 minutes into the meal, somebody pulled my chair out from behind and threw himself down on my lap, sitting on my lap, eating my food with his hands out of my plate. And that was Richard, and 
And then uh, I figured out that everybody uh, who brought me there wanted to blow my mind because I was a Christian, you know, and I'm on MGM Records, and these guys are all MGM executives, and they just they just said, let's take Larry and see what happens. Let's try to freak him out. So anyway, Richard and I became friends, and I ended up doing his first film shoot. I, you know, as you know, I take a lot of pictures of artists for album covers and stuff, so... I took Richard's first pictures, and uh, he said, I'm going to have my own TV show. And I said, oh, really? I hadn't heard about that. Is it a, a sitcom? He says, no. I said, oh, is it a drama? He says, no. I said, well, what, kind of, what other category is there? He said, oh, I don't know. I said, well, what's the name of your show? Well, I don't know. I don't have a show right now. I'm just going to have one. I have my, I'm going to have my own TV show. <laughs> Oh, okay. You know, you meet a lot of ambitious, eager people in in uh, Hollywood. And it turned out his his TV show was the uh, infomercials. I guess did he ever have a TV show? I I, I don't I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, you may have had something like a twenty minute workout thing or something. You know, some half hour you know sweating to Richard or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's. Close. I don't remember how you heard that story, but. But yeah, that's that's you you got it right. That's what happened. <laughs> if you could meet one person today, it's kind of a tiny talent time question here. But if you could meet one person today, you know, uh, throughout history, one person throughout history, who who would it be? Hmm. I'd like to see Malcolm Muggeridge again. I, I would. I'd like to have his friendship again. He was so incredibly brilliant. I, I don't think I ever learned to close my mouth when I was around him. <laughs> the stuff he said, I wish I'd had a tape recorder all the time because what he said was so profound and he didn't think so because he he had such a brilliant mind that for him it was normal. And I watched him debate. The, there's a Texas uh, family that that you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaire family that uh, funds debates in America. And so Malcolm would invite me to come to these things with him. And then he'd have three or four people debating. Now, they're all supposed to be de debating subjects. But eventually, and not too long after the beginning, they'd start to turn toward Malcolm and turn on him and try to defeat him. They hated that he was a Christian, but he wasn't a typical Christian as we think of them. He was profoundly Christian, and then it became just a brawl. They were all attacking him for the rest of the debate, and he fended them off with real grace and love and a sense of humor. He was very gentle and kind to them. You had the feeling that he could snap them in half, but that he was being nice to them and just <laughs> tolerating them like a, an old dog tolerates the new puppies that are jumping up and, you know, nipping at its neck and its tail. And so he was just amazing. So uh, even though I I knew him, I'd like to see him again. And, I, and I'm 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 imagining that. Jesus says, you know, I can't say that, so it has to be somebody else, so that's who I'd choose. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, Jesus is, you can't say that one. Uh, people who have influenced you spiritually over the over the years, who, who would be your number one 
uh, greatest spiritual influence, of course, other than Jesus himself? I think Malcolm Muggeridge and G.K. Chesterton. I think with, I, I think I'd say G.K. Chesterton number one, and G.K. is one of the main reasons that Malcolm became a Christian. So I'd say that he was very influential to a lot of people. Francis Schaeffer was affected. C.S. Lewis adored G.K. Chesterton. And I would say that I never scratched my head so many times as when I read books by G.K. Chesterton. And and uh, I was in England when I came across one of his books and I just thought it was incredible. Went back to the same bookstore and asked, Did, are there any more? And they said, there's two others. And I said, oh, is that all he wrote? And they said, no, he... He wrote a lot, but none of them are in print. So I began on each tour in England as I traveled from city to city. I tried to slip into a, a used bookstore and see if they had a remaining volume of anything that he'd written. And I finally had like 17 books that I accumulated and just thought they were incredible. And then it became his birthday, you know, 100 years after his uh, death, there was some kind of um, appreciation for him. And suddenly, something like 60 books came into print. Wow. And there, so there was no shortage. And, and I'd say that most of them are still available. You know, I, I have a, a hard time picking up some, some rare gems from A.W. Tozer. Uh, they seem to be going out of print more than they should, I think. But anyway. Yes. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on on one of your recorded interviews, Larry, you said that um, you said that relationships are one of the most important things in life, unless you're into rocks and trees and breakfast cereal. Uh, for some reason, that quote is stuck into my mind. Maybe it's because I'm a huge fan of breakfast cereal. Um, <laughs> and my father loved trees and rocks. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. But I I know that you've had some some hurt and broken relationships in the past. Uh, how how open would you be to maybe uh, just share a little bit about these relationships that you've you've had over the years? How has love treated you, so to speak? Well, I've repaired all my relationships with people. Uh, um, all of my artists. Uh, there might be a couple kind of holding back, but you know. When you try to overwhelm somebody with love and appreciation for who they are and let them know, even if they never uh, respond and refer to what you've said to them, if you let them know how much you appreciate who they were at the time you knew them and how you hear things about them now that are great. And, you know, love is infectious. It's, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful and it's charming to be confronted by someone who really loves you and cares about you. So I'd say that that's the key to repairing relationships is you have to love the other person more than they can imagine. And it has to be sincere. Hmm. Now, would the church have had a hard time with your divorces? Uh, no, they didn't have, no, because uh, I, I want to say unfortunately, but I, I guess I could say fortunately, they were well aware of the personality of my two wives and the problems they had were pretty open to the public so nothing was said to me uh, at all and I think that the uh, the response of the church was well you know what what took it this long to fall apart 
Right. You know, uh, I, I don't. Now they've changed. They've grown over the years. I really don't want to say anything about them uh, at all. And I dearly love them both, and never did stop loving either one of them. And they were uh, friends. You know, I I I cared about them not just as a uh, a person that I had rom- romantic affinity for, but also people that were Christians, and they were my sisters in Christ, and they had family problems, uh, great difficulties with parents, and that affects personality, and that affects behavior, and I understood what was going on, and did not really take it personally when it happened. The only thing that I would advise people is, um, in the Bible it says that if if you get a divorce, first it says a couple of things in the same area, same passage. Um, it's best not to get a divorce unless adultery is involved, because then the marriage has already been broken. That and that actually is a divorce of a kind. And the second thing is, if you get a divorce, don't get remarried. Now, it doesn't say if it's your fault. So uh, what I was taught was that it was a technicality, that if the other person did something, then your hands were clean and you could get remarried. I actually think it's it's fine to just stay alone forever. And it maybe takes a lot of guts to do that. And I don't know the circumstances of each person that's going to have to face this in their life. Maybe some people have 17 children and they need a husband. Uh... I just think it might be good advice to do what Paul said, and that's just remain remain as you are. I think he was more concerned about the spiritual life, and because he was also saying, if you're a bond servant, just you know, don't hassle it. Just because you're free in Christ and you're free indeed, doesn't mean you need to be free from your occupation. So don't break your contract with the family. If they've hired you for 10 years to be their bond servant and they've paid you the money and given it to your family, you know, don't say, hey, well, now I'm a Christian, so all bets are off. I'm splitting, man. You know, be a good witness uh, uh, as to your your uh, new life, your spiritual elevation. And, and uh, you know, if your husband or wife is not a Christian, don't say, well... I'm out of here then because you're not with the program. Don't say that. Just stay with them. If they're willing to stay with you now that you're a Christian, stay with them. If they want a divorce, give it to them. It's it's interesting the time we live in, I think, because I can't. The, divorce was so unacceptable in times past, but in our era, it seems to be more of an amenable proposition but when I had been divorced I thought I was going to hell I thought and this is back when I thought that God is really mad at all human beings I just thought okay well now I'm going to hell because I'm divorced I mean they're gone and I'm left here and I'm going to hell well isn't that nice and and my prayer to God though wrongly worded hopefully correctly aimed was okay God well I'm sorry I don't get to ever be with you in heaven but please please let me keep serving you don't 
don't take your hand off me. Let me keep bringing other people into the kingdom so they can go to heaven. And I totally understand. If I have to go to hell because that's the rules, hey, you're a fair and just God. So I totally accept it. I'm going to hell. I'm not thrilled about it. I'm going to really miss you for eternity, but please help me bring other people to heaven. So I was quite relieved when I found out God loved me and and that, that I'd been taught wrong by every church I'd ever sat in. Hmm. I remember sitting on a picnic table with you uh, with about ten other people after uh, some gig. I think it was near Kitchener-Waterloo up here in Ontario. Uh, this was about uh, 20 or so years ago. And I remember someone talking to you about the remarriage situation. And, and what came out of your mouth was some, I, I, maybe I'm misquoting you because it was you know it's a long time ago. But tell me tell me if this is something that you resonate with. I think what I heard you say was something along the lines of, I have a hard time believing that my God wants me to sit here and live a lonely life for the rest of my life because I'm divorced. No, that's the way I would have felt at the time. Even if I was alone, I, who, who did I have? I didn't even have God. God hated my guts because I'm a human being, so, which is wrong. So my, my I just felt like, well, great. I'm alone for the rest of my life. I'm not going to heaven because God's not going to let me in because now I'm I'm a qualified divorced person and there's no entrance for me. So I really I have no purpose to live except to bring other people to Christ. So, but I, but I had started reading a book called The Right to Remarry, and then I found out there were other books. When this is before I realized it was an industry. So I read three books and I thought, okay, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to be alone forever. The, the book says it's okay to, you know, it, the Bible says this. It's incredible. It says, without knowledge, the people suffer. Without a vision, the people perish. And that's what I was doing. I was perishing. I was always suffering because I didn't know the truth about God's love for us. So I, I was disadvantaged from the beginning. I kind of wonder... What might my songs have been like if I'd have waged the same war with culture and yet knew that God loved me? Would I have written more songs that could be considered positive? I feel like dying. I've done all- 